This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Progressive Insurance. Customers can save an average of $699 a year when they switch and save. Visit Progressive.com to get your car insurance quote. It only takes about six manly minutes. Get in Progressive.com to get your car insurance quote. National average car insurance savings by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive in 2018. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you struggle with getting your financial house in order, you may feel that what you need is more information on how things like stocks or IRAs or budgets work. However, my guest today would say that what you actually need most of all is a better understanding of the relationship that your parents and even your grandparents had with money and how the money scripts they've passed down to you have affected your own thinking about finances. His name is Brad Klontz. He's a psychologist who specializes in money issues, and he's the author of the book, Mind Over Money, Overcoming the Money Disorders that Threaten Our Financial Health. We begin our conversation discussing what Brad calls the big lie in personal finance. Brad then explains how money scripts from your childhood can keep you from making progress with your finances in adulthood. We dig into why you can feel shame over being both poor and rich, why it's hard to move ahead from the socioeconomic status you came from, and easy to get dragged back into a financial comfort zone, and how you can break out of old ingrained patterns. We end our conversation with how to be more intentional about the money scripts you're passing down to your own kids, including why you shouldn't tell them can't afford that. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash money scripts. Brad joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Brad Klontz, welcome to the show. Excited to be here, Brett. Thanks so much for having me. So you're a psychologist, but you specialize in issues people have with money. What led you down to go that path with your with your practice or your your studies? Yeah, I mean, a bit of an odd duck for sure. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, <laughs> um, I'll tell you, I got out of graduate school, and for those of you who've gone to college, you can totally relate to this. At least many of you can. I owed a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt by the time I was done with my doctorate degree, and I was raised, I would say, lower middle class, sort of working class mentality and environment. My parents were, however, were very frugal around money. And so there was this sense that, you know, there's not enough money. We need to save money. And whatever you do, don't borrow any money. Like, so debt is bad. Try to avoid it at all costs. So when I got out of graduate school, owing $100,000 in student loan debt, I was pretty anxious about it, especially the first year when I saw that I ended up paying about $8,000 in interest. I was mortified. And I was fairly, I would say I was fairly desperate to get out. And I was looking for ways, how can I pay this off as fast as possible? Well, during the same year, I saw a friend of mine make about $100,000 in 12 months trading stocks. And the thing about this friend is he knew nothing about the stock market. So in that sense, he was just like me, right? And I saw him make all this money. And I thought, what a brilliant strategy for me to do. I can get out of debt in a year and then just move on in my life. And so I sold what I had of value at that time, which was primarily my truck. And I I got all the the money I could and I put it all in the stock market. And Brett, I had just had a fabulous three or four months watching that money grow. I was on track. I realized this was the solution to my debt problems. And then the tech bubble burst. And I saw my money just start to melt away and slide away. And it was agonizing. I felt ashamed. I felt like I was an idiot. I was, I was sort of beating myself up around it. And then I did what I was trained to do in psychology. 
which was to try to look at, you know, what is my role in this? So how would a reasonably intelligent person do something so stupid with his money? And I went ahead and started to do what we do in psychology. We call it a literature search. I I was like, okay, certainly psychology has studied this whole issue of money before. And I can read some articles, read some books and figure out, you know, why I did what I did. And along that journey, very quickly, when I started to do searches, I realized that psychology had totally ignored the topic of money, much to my dismay, because I was actually just looking to find the cure for myself. And then I sort of joke, Brett, that within a matter of about three or four months, I became the world's leading expert in financial psychology, mainly because psychologists had avoided the topic of money for, for you know, over 100 years. And so I... I got interested in this, you know, quite a while ago, back in the tech bubble. And really, it came from trying to sort out my own relationship with money. And what I did is I actually, after that experience, I went back home and I sat down and I started to interview my family members. I sat down with my mother and I asked her questions that I'd never asked her before, you know, like, so what was it like for you growing up around money? What do you know about grandpa and grandma and what it was like for them? And I did the same thing with my father. And through those discussions, I was sort of blown away with stories that I had never heard of before that made my experience with money totally logical. It made total sense. I knew exactly why I did what I did, which was a huge help in terms of like lowering my feelings of shame and and my sense of failure. And really, it was that experience that led me on this journey to become a financial psychologist. So research is me-search for you. It's true. Exactly. And, you know, I, I do conduct a lot of research, but I feel like for me, that's, that's, I got interested primarily to figure out why I did what I did. And since then, I'm trying to help other people figure out why they do what they do. So you, you published a book, authored a book, co-authored it with your father called Mind Over Money. We can, you also, throughout this interview, please talk about that experience of writing a personal book about money with your dad. But in this book, you, you two highlight psychological issues that people have with money. And before we get to the specifics, you talk about in the beginning of the book that everyone believes, or just about everyone believes, this big lie about personal finance. What is that big lie that most people believe? You know, the basics of personal finance are incredibly simple. You know, and most Americans go wrong in these two basic areas, saving for the future and not spending more than you make. And so because it's so simple, there's an incredible amount of shame that goes along with our financial struggles. So the big lie about personal finance is that your financial struggles are the result of you being crazy, lazy, or stupid. And it's a big lie because your financial outcomes and financial behaviors are actually totally predictable if you can understand your financial psychology, if you can understand the money scripts that were passed down to you from your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your culture. We get these from a bunch of different sources. And these belief patterns that get passed down will totally predict for you things like your income, your net worth, and your financial behaviors. So it's not the result of you being crazy, lazy, or stupid. It's entirely predictable based on where you're from and what you learned about money. Well, another thing you talk about in the book as well is that another, I mean, call it a lie, but a, a misconception people have about getting their financial house in order is that if I only had more information, 
right? So that's why you, you know, personal finance books are perennial bestsellers. If I can get just enough information, then I'll turn it around. But that usually doesn't work out that way. It doesn't. And information is incredibly valuable. And so I don't want to discount that, especially since I'm a professor and I, you know, educate people and I provide information. <laughs> so it's incredibly effective for about, and this is all research-based too, for about 20% of the people. You, 20% of the time, you're in the action phase. We call it around change where just tell me what to do and I go do it. That's the sort of the minority of people that's, that's us, you know, the minority of times, if you will, around any given issue. So much more of it is, is psychological. A great example on this is, you know, overeating. It's like, we know that we should eat better and exercise more. I mean, it's pretty simple. You can, in about two minutes, Google a good diet for yourself or exercise program. So it's really not about giving you more information, more details about the negative effects of obesity on your health or the the benefits of exercise. You already know that. And so that's typically what happens with money. Our problems with money aren't that complicated. It's not like, you know, I'm in financial trouble and I have a ton of financial stress because I don't know the difference between a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. Really important information for you to know, but giving up, giving people that information, stuff they already know, isn't very helpful. And, and so the work that I do is really focused on looking at what is that underlying psychology you have around your relationship with money? Because the research we've done has shown that your beliefs around money, your relationship with money, that is a very strong predictor of whether or not you become wealthy or whether or not you you stay in a struggle with money. You've mentioned the idea of money scripts. Now, we develop these money scripts oftentimes in childhood, basically based on when we were growing up. And at the time, these money scripts probably made sense, right? It, it actually, we developed that script about money because when the situation we were in, the context we were in, it, it actually made sense. And then you talk about how there's certain flashpoints throughout our childhood where those money scripts really set in. So what are some examples of those type of financial flashpoints that sort of set money scripts for the rest of our life? Yeah, I'll give a personal example. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, I had made this mistake in the tech bubble, losing all my money. And again, out of a sense of sort of desperation to pay off my debt. And so I went home and I started to interview my mother. And one of the stories I found which blew my mind because I had no idea this was happening. And I was actually very close to my grandfather. But when my grandfather was a young man, he lost all of his money when the, the banks collapsed during the Great Depression. Now, just imagine that. Imagine going to the bank tomorrow and you know a lifetime's worth of savings is now gone. And as a matter of fact, you can't get anyone to talk to you. All you know is that the money's gone. It's gone forever. You can't get any of it back. That's what happened to him. Very traumatic experience, I would imagine. My grandfather, through hearing the stories, he arrived at the money belief, you can't trust financial institutions with your money. Now, to your point, Brett, that that is an actual true statement (laughs) from my grandfather. And as, as a matter of fact, if he had believed that before the banks collapsed, he would have taken out his money and buried it in the backyard, and we probably would have been fine. So 100% accurate back then that you absolutely cannot trust banks with your money. And the people who did put trust in the banks with their money lost their money. So he had such an emotional intensity related to that belief that he couldn't shake it. And what I mean by that is that the context very quickly changed. So the federal government came in and said, okay, we get it. Nobody trusts banks. We're going to start guaranteeing 
bank accounts up to $100,000, where if the banks collapsed, we'll step in and give you that money. So the context changed, reality changed, but my grandfather's beliefs did not change. And he passed away in his 90s. And what I didn't know is that he never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life. What he did is he kept his cash in a lockbox in the attic or under his bed. Yeah, so that, that, that's a great example. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, so I mean, when I heard that story, my mother's anxiety around money started to make total sense to me. <laughs> you know, I knew she was afraid of not having enough. I knew that she was afraid of the stock market, didn't want to invest in the stock market. As I mentioned, though, she was extremely frugal, and so she was a saver. So she took it a step further, and she would put money in CDs, which, which is good. you know. But because of that intense fear, she missed out on decades of growth in the stock market. And I came along, and I was very committed at an early age to not be poor like my family. I, I realized that um, not having enough money is kind of an aversive experience. And it's better to have money in order to do things that you want to do and have opportunities and travel and go to school and all that kind of thing. So I determined at an early age, I don't want to be like my family around this. And so at an early age, I was sort of looking for, I'm going to do things differently than you do. And so that's one of the things that sort of set me up. My my family's extreme distrust in the stock market led to, I call it a dysfunctional pendulum swing, where I swung to the opposite side and what I did is, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be like them. Instead of taking a balanced approach, I did the opposite. So I took all my money and I put it not just in a financial institution, but in the riskiest possible stock market sector. And I put it all my eggs in one basket. And so that's a hugely you know, dysfunctional pendulum swing in the opposite direction, which wouldn't have made any sense to me unless I had done that history. And then it made total sense. Here I am trying to sort of desperately not repeat the patterns my family was in. I didn't know the full story. And I went to an extreme behavior on the other side. So money beliefs, like, you know, you can't trust banks with money. You can't trust the stock market, which, by the way, an entire generation of millennials are struggling with this and have been struggling with this because they saw their parents lose their money and homes back in 2008. Um, and so there's been studies showing that this belief that you can't trust the stock market or it's not a good approach in terms of growing your wealth is something that an entire new generation is, is dealing with. These beliefs, we call them money scripts in our research, and they're typically passed down through the generations. They're typically rattling around in your subconscious. One of the problems with our relationship with money is money is a big taboo topic. So we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it much. And so there's not a lot of opportunities for us to examine our thinking and to challenge and change it or to hear what our friends' parents are thinking about money or aunts and uncles or other people who are further along or more successful. It's kind of a taboo topic. So we're left to sort of make up these stories and try to sort it out ourselves. And so these money, money scripts are incredibly powerful. The studies we've done have shown that they predict your income, your net worth, your level of debt, the socioeconomic status you grew up in, and a whole host of financial behaviors. And so I think there's a lot of value in examining what did your mother teach you about money? What did your father teach you about money? What experiences did you have growing up around money? What did these experiences and messages lead to in, in terms of what's rattling around in your own brain about how you believe money works? Because they are definitely impacting your, your financial behaviors and your sort of ceiling of success. 
Okay, so a flashpoint is sort of a moment surrounding money that's like emotionally charged, highly emotionally charged. So a stock market crash could be one. A parent losing a job could be could be one of those flashpoints, and that could ripple down through the generations. But you also, besides these events, these moments that can sort of be the origin of these you know, these money scripts, you also talk about how our relationships with other people can set us up into a financial comfort zone that will stick with us for the rest of our life. Even though, you know, we might, our financial situation might've changed, we, we still feel comfortable in that comfort zone. And so we still carry those scripts that allow us to live within that comfort zone. So walk us through some of these comfort zones and why it's so hard to change as our money circumstance change. Yeah, absolutely. So we are human beings who've evolved over tens of thousands of years in tribal groups. And so being a part of a tribe in terms of our lower brain, our mammalian brain is essential to survival. So, you know, 50,000 years ago, if you were separated from your tribe you or exiled, you died. You died and your children died. And that was it for you. So our status and connection with a tribe is so critically important to us on a, on a psychological level that even today we will utterly destroy ourselves financially in order to stay within our family group or tribe. This is sort of how we're wired. You've heard many stories, I'm sure, of people who come into massive amounts of money, let's say winning the lottery or athletes who come into big contracts or musicians who come into big contracts who then take this money and then totally get rid of it and destroy it and, and live totally irresponsibly. And then it's all gone. And it's real easy to sit back and go, oh my gosh, these people are idiots, right? Like if, if that happened to me, I wouldn't do that. I'd be much more phys- you know, fiscally responsible. But what happens is that chances are your top closest family members and friends are around the similar socioeconomic level as you are. And it's almost a culture. Like, you know, the culture I grew up in, you know, it wasn't very fancy. Like, I remember the first time I went to a restaurant and I saw that there was more than one fork (laughs) at my place setting. And I'm like, there's three of them. What am I supposed to do with all these forks? I immediately felt like I was outside of my comfort zone in a big way. I wasn't sure exactly how to behave. I looked around. People are dressed differently than me. They're acting differently than me. It was an incredibly uncomfortable situation. And you've probably had an experience like that either on that end or going into a an area where people have much less than you and they drive different cars and they dress differently and you're you're feeling uncomfortable because people are staring at you and they can tell you don't belong there and you're not even sure exactly how to operate, keep yourself safe or whatever. And so those are examples of sort of getting out of that financial comfort zone. And it's amazing how so many of our behaviors, especially if people are trying to enter into a higher socioeconomic level. So let's say they they grew up relatively poor, they go to college and now they're making much more income than their family or friends. Or as I said, they come into some sort of like sudden money events. It's, it's, we're actually wired to get rid of that money to get back to our comfort zone. So it's extremely powerful. And so to override that, you have to be extremely conscious of what's happening because emotionally um, you're going to just feel a sense of disconnection and, and probably panic that could lead you to make some bad financial decisions. And it can go the other way too. You could start off in a higher socioeconomic 
um, level and then you lose a job, but you still feel comfortable in that level. So you'll take on debt to you know, maintain appearances so you can go to the country club or whatever it is that your group does. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's not an uncommon experience because people are feeling sort of ashamed or that like they don't belong. And so they'll do whatever it takes to sort of maintain their status in a tribe. And from the outside, using your you know, prefrontal cortex, your scientist brain, you look at it and you say, well, that's very illogical. You know, you should just, of course, you should just sell your house and move to a, you know, a a middle-class home. That's fine. And you should get rid of your luxury car and get a Honda or Toyota. And this is a totally reasonable thing to do. Of course you should do that. That's what the rational brain says. But that emotional brain that's very much linked to tribal survival feels an incredible sense of anxiety. And, And you'll actually see people with that amount of strain actually take their own life. And, and that's not an uncommon thing. And, and, and quite often it's, it's males doing it whose, whose self-esteem and self-worth is entirely wrapped up into the money they make and, and their social status. And just that level of unconsciousness can lead to somebody taking an, an incredibly you know, permanent and, and terrible action because they feel such a sense of desperation because they're separated from their tribe. Okay, so let's get into some of these money disorders, sort of in specifics. We've been talking about a few of them so far, but the first one you talk about in the book is this money disorder called money avoidance. And this is kind of weird because you'd think people would want more money, but as you've been talking about in the book, there's a certain situations where people would want to avoid it at all, at all costs. So what's going on there, and what are the different ways that money avoidance can manifest itself? Yeah, you know, Brett, you're pointing out that it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm going to agree with you. What's so interesting in the research we've done is that people who, for example, strongly believe that rich people are greedy and that money corrupts and there's actually virtue in living with less money. So these are actual beliefs that we've, we've tested. People who really strongly believe that also very strongly believe that more money will make them happier that more money will solve all their problems, and that they wish they had more money. So imagine that level of conflict rattling around in your subconscious and how that might play itself out. So that money avoidance, you know, that you have a negative association with money, and typically you're coming from a group of people who share that negative association with money. And and one one of the things that come into play is a sense of ambivalence around it. So part of you really wants money, another part of you feels like you don't deserve it or it's, it, you know, you don't belong in that socioeconomic status. And so, you know, which is easier, like getting more money or having negative feelings about money? Well, it's easier to just hold on to those negative feelings about money. And so then you'll engage in that confirmation search for all the reasons why it's good for you to not actually have money and actually why you're probably even a better person than somebody who has more money than you. These are rationalizations to make us feel better about where we're at. And so some of those money avoidance type disorders are, are ones where people are squandering inheritances or, you know, like the lottery winners or, or that sort of thing, or people who are avoiding thinking about money altogether. And then people who sort of seesaw between trying to pursue money and getting it and then kind of blowing up and getting back to their comfort zone. So you, yeah, you highlight examples in the book of you know people who grew up in a family or a household where yeah, money was bad. People who rich people are evil, and so once they they inherit money, they or get a lot of money, they give it to family members or just squander it. But you also highlight examples of people who grew up in well-off families, and they made them feel uncomfortable because they weren't like the rest of their peers. Like I think there was an example of a girl, you know, parents were really rich. 
And like she got dropped off by a chauffeur and like had like a, a nanny that would come to the the parent teacher conference. And it kind of set her up for, you know, going in, you know, she could have had a great life, but she tried to, she just shunned money because it made her feel awkward. And it's not uncommon to have shame about having too little and feeling really embarrassed about that. But studies also show that people feel ashamed and embarrassed when they have more than the people around them. And so a lot of it has to do with, you know, who's in your neighborhood and who are you hanging around? And for, for many of our clients, and you're, you're mentioning one in her story, is when you're growing up around people who don't have as much than you, you can start to feel really bad about yourself. Yeah, so you have more than people, but you're feeling bad about yourself. What's that about? Well, the fact is that you're not belonging to the tribe. And so you're, you're feeling like a sense of threat and not a lack of belonging. And so this is, a, this is not an uncommon experience where people grow up having wealth and feeling ashamed about it and embarrassed and feeling guilty about it because compared to the people closest around them, they don't belong and they don't feel a sense of connection. And so they link that to money. And so their little brains as, as kids say, you know, it's bad to have money. If you want to have love and connection, you need to not have money. And so that's the interesting thing about these money scripts is they're very often developed with a childlike mind because we're children when we're developing them. And we don't really sit back and think about them. Like, is that really true? Is that really accurate? Let me look at the pros and cons and weigh the evidence. That's not what kids do. They're just sort of like, we have money. We're not, you know, my friends don't. I feel bad. They look at me weird. Okay, I don't want any money. And so that gets played out in adulthood where people will, as I said, engage in self-destructive financial behaviors or somehow sabotage themselves right before they reach success or live, you know, basically way below their means, not out of sense of this is how I want to live my life, but out of sense of guilt. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. You might think you know Milwaukee, the Bucks, Brewers, Beer, Bratz, Laverne and Shirley, the Fonz. Sure, but that's not all. It's also home to the Flying Art Museum on the water. It's the Bloody Mary Metropolis, the frozen custard capital of the world, America's heart of outdoor art, the freshwater surfing sanctuary, the independent movie theater mecca of the Midwest, and home to the biggest musical festival in the world. Vogue magazine said it was the Midwest's coolest and most underrated city. Money, Inc. said it was a Midwestern mecca for foodies, and the Huffington Post called it America's best-kept secret. But after this podcast ad, well, not for long. Where else can you go duck pin bowling and frozen motorcycle racing, or see rolling taverns, sausage races, and the home base of Harley all in the same day? Milwaukee. That's where. Sometimes random, but always wonderful. Go to visitmilwaukee.org slash plan to get your trip started. Again, that's visitmilwaukee.org slash plan. See you there. Also by ZipRecruiter. If you're a hiring manager or small business owner, you know that hiring can be a big pain in the rear to find qualified candidates. It takes a long time. A lot of applications you got to sort through. There's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in. ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. You spell ZipRecruiter, Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I. 
ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. Go check it out if you're a hiring manager or small business owner. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. And I mean, how do you overcome that money avoidance disorder? Is it just a matter of being self-aware, or is there some like some work you have to do? I think awareness is hugely important and valuable, and quite often you do need to do some work, um, some extra work related to that. But since money is such a huge taboo topic, for many people, this is sort of like a light bulb popping on for them for the first time because we just don't really talk about it that much, and there's not a lot of places where you can go and examine this. And so I think just having some consciousness, like it did for me with my grandfather, just understanding that that fear and that anxiety of not having enough is something that just goes back for generations in my family. And so when I'm experiencing, it, it gives me another perspective, like, well, I don't have to do the same thing they did. So I can actually engage my scientist brain a little bit by, by putting that into perspective. And so the other thing that we do in a, on a very practical level with entertainers we work with and athletes and other people who've come into large sums of money, part of what we do in, in their financial plan is how can, you know, if your value is to help family and friends and community, which is incredible, you know, that's not a value that I would discourage anyone from, from having. It's, it's kind of essential, I think, to how we function as a society. So how can we meet those needs of wanting to love and support your family, friends, and community in a way that will be helpful for them, not hurtful, if you just give money to the average person without sort of, you know, some structure to it, and let's imagine somebody who's been living at a certain level for years or maybe not be a, a great manager of money themselves. I mean, you're probably not helping them very much by giving them a bunch of money. They'll probably just blow through it or spend it irresponsibly or whatever, and it's gone. I mean, this is the pattern for most of us that I mentioned. You know, all of a sudden you get a bunch of money and it creates a sense of anxiety or excitement or whatever, and then it all disappears. So how can we take that need to want to help people and structure it in a way that maintains your wealth, allows you to continue to provide support for years and years to come, and also does it in a way that doesn't enable somebody or set up some sort of financial dependency that can be crushing for them. And what sort of advice do you give your clients who they, they come into money or they, you know, they graduate college, the first to graduate college and they get a, a good job, but their, their family is still where they were. And then they start experiencing the friction uh, with, you know, just, just, you know, offhand remarks, right? Sort of cutting remarks. How do you advise your clients to how to manage that? Yeah. And it's a very real experience, Brett. And it's a very painful experience for many people. And so it, it's a combination typically. So obviously a lot of it has to do with the exact situation, the exact people involved, but typically it's a, it's a combination of perhaps you're not going to be quite as, and this is, this happens in research too. Like people who actually have more money than the people around them tend to be more secretive about it for very good reasons. And some studies have shown that, you know, children of wealthier families, they totally get that people don't like them and judge them because they have more money. And so they're actually pretty secretive about it and they don't want to flaunt it and they don't want to show it off because they're worried about people not seeing them for who they are and judging them. So, so part of it is that in, in terms of like, how much are we going to disclose? What's a, what's a good thing to disclose? And then what sort of conversations might you need to have? Um, and by the way, some relationships can't tolerate this. So let's say that you have a family assumption that, you know, there's, there's six of us, you come into money, you're going to break it up into, you know, six portions and give it to us. And by the way, this is not an unusual assumption that, that can come from a family system. 
And so how are you going to handle that? I mean, that's the question. Like, and for some people, they have to be willing to have some difficult conversations. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And that comes with a tremendous amount of risk. Maybe people aren't going to want to be around you anymore or love you anymore or like you anymore or talk to you anymore. That's a very real thing. And so typically it's trying to find, strike a balance between, you know, is it your value to try to help your family in a very direct financial way? And if so, how can we do that in a way that takes care of you and takes care of them? So let's move on to another money disorder, which is the opposite of money avoidance, which is money worshiping. So what are the scripts that are going on there with money worshiping? Yeah, these are very common in our culture. And they are beliefs like more money will make me happier. More money will solve all my problems. Things will get better when I have more money. And, you know, there's some scientific evidence to prove that that's actually correct. Okay. So it is true that being in poverty is a terrible experience for people and that their happiness actually goes up when they enter that middle class level. And the number shifts, you know, but typically it's the median income in the United States. You're able to pay your rent or mortgage. You're able to put food on the table. You're able to take care of the basic needs of your family. So there's a certain level of stress that you no longer have. So totally true. More money will make you happier and solve a lot of your problems once you hit that level. Now, what's interesting is that the, most of the research shows that money above that level, there's no correlation between happiness and having more money. And so that belief, which becomes very true as you're moving into the middle class, becomes utterly false as you're moving up into higher um, socioeconomic areas. Now, not to say that, you know, a happy person can't, you know, find other ways to express their happiness and enjoy life more by having more money. It's just to say that odds are it won't. <laughs> and odds are it won't happen for you as much as you might think it would. So money worship is really this intense belief that that's enduring that, you know, money's going to solve all my problems. And frankly, it won't. And the research shows that people who really strongly believe that are likely to have less money, less income, less net worth and engage in self-destructive financial behaviors. Because the flip side of that is, you know, more stuff will make me happier. And so these individuals have a tendency to overspend in an effort to have money and stuff bring them happiness, joy, and a sense of fulfillment. And, and how do those scripts develop? What's, is, is there like a flashpoint in childhood that sort of sets them on that path? Yes. And um, I feel like our culture is an entire flashpoint for that message. You know, back when I was a kid, there used to be a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Oh, yeah. And it was like, wow, look at, look at what money can give you. Um, but, you know, that show was on only once a week or whatever. But now you can pick up your phone and on Instagram, you can look at people, you know, posting, you know, the best parts of their life. And you can constantly feel like you're missing out because, wow, somebody's on, a, on an island somewhere. That's incredibly beautiful. I'm not, I don't have that. You know, I'm feeling, now I'm starting to feel poor. And it's this concept called relative deprivation. And so our actual happiness related to what we have is entirely subjective. And what I mean by that is there's not an actual dollar amount across the world. It's where we stack up compared to people close to us. So in the United States, as I mentioned, all that research was around the median income. So like you're kind of average, so you're okay. But when you are put in front of people who have way more than you, it creates a whole psychological avalanche of bad feelings that emerge for you. And in an effort to feel better, you are at risk of overspending and abusing credit to try to get yourself access to some of that other stuff those people are experiencing that seems to make them happier. 
So in our current culture, we're inundated with lifestyles of the rich and famous type television shows and social media, constantly making people feel like they're deprived and, and reinforcing the belief that if I had more money, I'd be happier. Yeah, that relative uh, deprivation thing can be a booger because there's been studies where they show, you highlight this in the book, where people would rather make, like they have an option of like making more money, like just, you know, more than they're making right now or making less than someone else, even though, you know, you know what I'm talking about? So it's like they'd rather make less money as long as like they're not making less money than the guy next to them. Yeah, per- yeah, perfect example of, how crazy we are when it comes to money in terms of our logical brain. And you're, you're referencing a study that was done with Harvard graduate students where they asked them, you know, would you rather make $100,000, but you're like, I don't forget the numbers, but it, this is essentially what it was. Would you rather make $100,000, all your friends are making $200,000, or would you rather make $50,000, but your friends are making $25,000? So, you know, obviously you should pick the 100,000 because that's twice as much as 50,000. But the majority of those Harvard graduate students said, I'd rather make half as much, but more than my friends. And that makes no logical sense. That's why you have to think about that emotional brain, that tribal brain, because it makes perfect sense when you look at it from that angle. And I imagine this uh, money worshiping can also be the result of being deprived in childhood. So maybe you, you had a hard childhood and you come into money and you're like, man, I'm going to spend this money because I didn't get to do this as a kid. Um, sort of like your example, right? Where you, uh, you know, you had, a, you know, grew up relatively poor, you came into money, started, you know, you put it all in the stock market and, and lost big. Yeah. So Brad, are you, are you saying that my money script might be some money worship? Are you being I'm, my psychologist? I'm, I'm, you're I'm being a, right. I'm, yes. no, you're actually I'm being a psychologist. Yes. I'm putting, <laughs> um, yeah. So no, it's totally true. And people who grow up in, um, lower socioeconomic levels, you know, that belief is really common because, you know, as I mentioned, not having money, enough money for basic needs can be a really uncomfortable and and somewhat traumatic experience for many people. And so there is truth to that. The problem is that the truth only extends to once your basic needs are met. And so if you're not balancing that truth with actual, the actual things that will actually make you happier, which by the way, aren't money, it's close relationships, it's being immersed in an endeavor that you love, that fulfills you, you know, you're not going to be happy chasing a, a job that is you find miserable and working 100 hours a week at that job just to get you money and then expect to be happy. That's just actually not how you become happy. And so it's, it's an accurate belief to a certain point, but it becomes destructive the more intense you believe it, for sure. So let's talk about some relational money disorders. Cause like you highlight this in the book is that uh, money is one of the biggest sources of marital conflict sources of divorce. So what are some of the big issues you see pop up between spouses, but also parents and kids when it comes to money? Yeah. So, you know, money is one of those things that just weaves into every aspect of our lives and certainly relationships. And the odds are that you and your spouse have different money scripts. You're coming from different family systems. And, you know, maybe the same side of the tracks, maybe not. But, you know, it's just assume there's going to be some disagreements around money because you grew up in different families. And one of the challenges is if you're not aware that you're playing out these scripts that were written by your great-grandparents, you can spend an entire marriage trying to convince your spouse that their beliefs are wrong and yours are right without really understanding that yours might be a little biased too. So, you know, problem, you know, fights around money in marriages, it's relationships, it's just ubiquitous. It it just happens all over the place. It's, it's a huge issue. And so it really does help to understand your psychology 
in order to um, find good ways to negotiate. Another common one within couples is you'll find people who hide their spending or lie, if you will. We call it financial infidelity. Lie about their spending or how much money they're making or their investments they're making or even money they're receiving. There's a lot of different ways that couples can not give the full truth around what's happening. And as a matter of fact, it's about one out of three couples. People in a relationship admit to lying in some form to their partner around money. So it's a, it's a pretty common issue, which can be a big problem when it gets discovered where people start to wonder, you know, okay, what else are you lying to me about? So it can sort of rattle the sense of security and safety in a, in a relationship. Other ones we see have to do with that larger family system. And a real common one that I run across is the relationship between financially enabling someone and then the financial dependent. So a financial enabler is giving money to someone always out of a sense of I want to help or even out of a sense of guilt. So it's, it's, it's financial help, but it hurts. So that's the enabling part. It hurts because money is an incredibly powerful reinforcer. So there are days that you get up and you don't really want to go to work. You know, you maybe you love your job, but you'd rather go fishing today or skiing or whatever it is. But you do go to work. And the reason you go to work is because you get money for it. And that's an incredibly reinforcing thing. So money increases behavior. So that's what a reinforcer does. So if I get money for doing nothing, it is going to totally reinforce me doing nothing. Or if I get money for begging my parents to give it to me, and then then they give it to me, it's going to increase my begging my parents to give it for me. Um, This is just human nature. So, you know, I'm not criticizing people who are financially dependent. It could happen to anyone. You could set up that situation and create this in anyone. And so the financial enabler is giving money that it actually hurts. And on the financial dependence side, and, and studies have shown this, the research we've done, financial dependence leads to a sense of a lack of creativity, a lack of drive, a lack of life satisfaction, and even resenting the people who are giving it to you because invariably there's some strings attached. And so that financial dependent personality is, is a really tough way to go through life. And what's interesting is that personality is really similar in terms of how they look at the world and their experience of the world for people who come from like multi-generational welfare families to multi-generational trust fund families. You'll find, you'll find in both of those individuals sort of a fundamental lack of drive, a lack of passion, um, some self-loathing, and then of course resentment towards the source of the money. So I'm, I'm listening to this, the, the relational aspect, and I'm, I'm a dad, and I'm thinking, okay, what can I do to you know, make sure that my kids have a healthy relationship with money and that I don't pass on any money scripts that I might've picked up because, you know, grandfather or grandma experienced the great depression. And I still have that with me for whatever reason. So what can parents do to sort of break that cycle that might be going on within their family? You know, Brett, I I mean, I'm so glad you asked that. And, you know, I've of course got it all figured out because I'm a financial psychologist, but I do have two little boys myself. And so of course I don't at all. (laughs) And and, you know, I think being aware of, of your money scripts and just being aware that you are teaching your children stuff right now today about money and whether you're talking about it or not, they're picking up on it. And I'll tell you, this is a true story happened last week. My wife and I are in the middle of, of moving, which is a very stressful thing. And my son, for whatever reason, he said, dad, I wish I had a million dollars. And, you know, I, now I'm curious. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. He's six. I'm like, well, what would you do with a million dollars? And he said, I would take the money and I would give it to pay for the movers. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, he must've overheard us talking about paying the movers. And so 
by paying attention to that, first of all, I feel like, you know, huge mistake. Like my son overheard this. Oh no. Now he thinks he needs to chip in or whatever. Where did he get that idea? But my awareness of that gave me an opportunity to, to sit down with him and say, you know what, son, you don't need to worry about that. We've got it covered. We, we can totally afford it. <laughs> I appreciate your thinking about us, um, but that's not something you would need to worry about. So assuming you don't need to worry about that, what else would you do with the million dollars? So this is just a really, you know, personal example that happened just the other week. And again, I'm a father and we are giving messages to our children every single day. And I think just really being conscious of that and noticing if they're saying something that seems to be a money script that we can work with it with them a little bit and sort of expand it. And and that's really what, what health is in terms of money beliefs is making that belief more accurate in more situations. So, you know, for example, the belief that rich people are greedy, certainly true that you know, some rich people are greedy. So now all of a sudden that becomes a much more accurate statement. I mean, it becomes even much more accurate if you say some people are greedy and money can corrupt people, but some wealthy people are incredibly generous and have done incredible things in the world. Now that's a money script that's even more accurate. And so part of it is observing what's happening in your kids, being conscious, of course, as you can in terms of what you're teaching them, but then also looking for those opportunities to sort of expand that definition of whatever script that you have given them probably unconsciously. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of sort of countering that money avoidance script. But another one would be like with the money worshiping, it's like, Hey, you know, money's great, but you know, it can't, can't buy you, can buy you happiness to a certain point. But after that, it's not going to do much for you. Yeah. You know, another one that comes to mind too, is I really encourage parents to not, not tell your kids we can't afford that. I think that's a terrible thing to say. Because I, I would bet you that you probably could, like if you sold your house and cashed out all your retirement funds, you could probably go to Disney World. And so I, I don't think you should do that, but I'm just saying that it's not that you can't afford it. So you don't want to give your kids a message that, you know, there's not enough money. But what you might want to do is take that as an opportunity to say, you know what, we're not, we're not spending our money that way. And here's the reason why. <laughs> we're spending it in these other categories. We do want to take that vacation. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to actually start saving for that. And it's going to take us a year and we're going to save X amount per year, per month. We're going to put it in this account. And once all that money's saved up, then we're going to... So what, what you're doing is you're actually educating them on a, on a skill set and a mentality you want them to carry with them. That's a huge mistake in our culture too, is that we have such immediate access to the stuff we want that kids will just watch you want a new TV and then just go buy one. And so what's the message? Oh, when you want something, you just go buy it. And there's this little piece of plastic and you just swipe it and then you get to take it home. And because of that, our kids don't get to watch us saving for something. And so looking to contrive experiences that teach your kids how to delay gratification by modeling it yourself. So pick something that you want as a household. Maybe you can go buy it right now. But how about if you tell your kids you're going to save up for it? and involve them in that process. You know, put a little thermometer on the wall and, and it goes up until you get that thing you want. Because you're teaching your kids how to delay gratification and the importance of saving if you can model it for them. What do you, what's your advice to parents when they, their kids ask them, like, dad, are we rich or are we poor? Like, what, what, what should be the response there? How do you have that conversation? Well, I think that the first thing you should do is, is to become really curious about that. And so don't just start educating your kid, you know, just say, you know, well, what do you mean by that? You know, and, and chances are they'll start to tell you a story about something that someone said or, you know, the context. And then, that, and then it's your opportunity 
to start to pass along your values. And so this is a very, you know, personal thing, you know, and for me, I, I would probably talk about that, um, you know, compared to the rest of the world, you know, we are, we're incredibly rich, you know, um, and it's true for just about every American. If you compare yourself to the average income, even if you're on public assistance, you are incredibly wealthy compared to everyone else in the world. And so it's a matter of perspective. And so um, I would I would like to flesh it out like that, you know, like, well, you know, in, in many ways we are, and these are the ways we have access to all this and that. And in some ways we're not, some people have more than us. And so I would, I would talk about it in that, in those terms. Well, Brad, where can people go to learn more about your work in the book? Well, I, I'm putting a lot of energy into my YouTube channel at this point where I'm trying to make videos to educate people on financial psychology and doing my best to make them entertaining, which is Dr. Brad Klontz. I'm also at Dr. Brad Klontz on Twitter and, and all the social media places. And then I actually have, if people are interested in, in looking at their money scripts, the test that we used in all of our research projects um, is available to take for free online. You just stick in your numbers there and your answers, and then the email will get sent to you. And that's at yourmentalwealthadvisors.com. Fantastic. Well, Brad Klontz, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Brett. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today was Dr. Brad Klontz. He's the author of the book, Mind Over Money. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, yourmentalwealth.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash money scripts, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finances, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you would like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so only on Stitcher Premium. Sign up at stitcherpremium.com. Use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a month free of Stitcher Premium. After you sign up, download the Stitcher app on iOS or Android and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>